Hello, everybody. I'm Sarah Jessica, and this is my podcast, Hot Shots. Welcome. Um, if you haven't tuned in before, I'm Sarah Jessica. I'm a Hamilton-based music and arts journalist. And on my podcast here, I talk to Canadian musicians, artists, and arts industry professionals about what it's like to work within the Canadian entertainment industry. The good, the bad, the ugly, all that stuff. So uh, thank you so much for tuning in. If you're a returning guest, I really appreciate your support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Tonight, I am hanging out with Alan Cross. Um, if you don't know Alan, you should. Um, it's a little embarrassing. You should know. Uh, he's a Toronto-based broadcaster, interviewer, blogger, speaker, and music journalist. Known for his radio series, The Ongoing History of New Music, The Secret History of Rock, and Explore Music. You can find all things Alan at ajournalofmusicalthings.com, on Instagram under Alan underscore Cross X, on Twitter under Alan Cross, on TikTok under Alan Cross X, and on Facebook under The Ongoing History of New Music with Alan Cross. So, hey, Alan. Hello. <laughs> uh, big title there. Lots of titles. Uh, yeah. I, I just visited my parents over the weekend, mm -hmm. and they asked, you know, what are you doing? Uh, <laughs> well, it's kind of hard to explain. Mm -hmm. There's there's a lot of stuff going on all the time. I just put professional music geek on my business card and just leave it at that. Well, there we go. Perfect title. And um, Alan, where did you grow up? I grew up in a small town north of Winnipeg. Um, mm -hmm. This is on the Canadian prairies, middle of nowhere, really. The town was so small that my dad was actually mayor for a number of years. Yeah. And uh, I think you know, 2,000, 2,500 people. I think that's where I grew up. Yeah. Guess your family has a lot of uh, influence there. Not really. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's it was it's, it's a farming community, bedroom community from Winnipeg, and yeah. uh, you know, we have been there since 1965. So, mm -hmm. yeah, we we know everybody, but as for influence, nah, I wouldn't say so. Not mm. at all. No not not since not since Dad stopped being mayor. Right, right, right. Yeah, I'm from Beamsville, Ontario, so I know what that small town community is like for sure. Yes, yeah. my wife is from Beamsville. I know it very well. Yeah. I mean, our families probably know each other if she's from there. So, uh, Guaranteed. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. And um, what kind of music did you grow up around? What did your like parents play for you as a kid? Nothing. My, <laughs> my parents were not very musical at all. I mean, dad would often go to the bedroom on a Saturday night and strum his guitar and sing along to himself. But as for wow. music playing in the house on a regular basis, it never really happened. Mm -hmm. Now that I look back on it, I mean, we didn't have a stereo in the house until long after I started buying records. Uh, and I don't know why. It just didn't seem to be very important. Although my parents were huh. very insistent that my sister and I take music lessons. I ended up taking the accordion, don't ask. Mm. And my sister sister played the uh, the Yamaha electone organ. Nice. Not very, not very sexy. <laughs> but no, there, there was never much music playing in the house until um, I started buying records. We got that stereo and my sister started getting into music as well. Mm -hmm. so, you know, I never really thought about it, but that's kind of strange, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And especially because it's become such a huge part of your life, like your entire career. Well, when I bought my first record, my mom thought it was a big waste of money. Mm -hmm. She she didn't understand the need of for, for an album, especially by this weirdo named Elton John. Uh, you know, save your money for something more important. I don't know, right. What was more important to me than that at that point. But yeah, that's uh, that's the way it was. And then uh, if there was music, it was it was the really boring type. I, there's a my mom tells me a story that when the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan in 1964, I was 18 months old mm -hmm. and my dad apparently hustled me out of the room. Because he was afraid that the Beatles would be a bad influence on me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The Beatles used to be edgy. 
I guess, <laughs> but I don't know what kind of imprinting they would have had on an 18 year uh, 18 month old, but okay. Mm-hmm. And um, who was the first musician or band that spoke to you? I, I, I'll go back to Elton John. Uh, the first mm-hmm. record I ever bought with my own money from a paper route was Elton John's Greatest Hits Volume 1. And that was $4.99 at Robinson's General Store in downtown where I lived. Nice. And, uh, a, a bin. And if, if you grew up in a small town, you'll remember that furniture stores and general stores and mm-hmm. sometimes drug stores had a bin of records out front that they just mixed everything into. <laughs> and uh, that's where I found it. You know, $5.69 with tax. Mum was livid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when do you feel as though you first became passionate about music? Sometime around then, although mm-hmm. uh, for my sixth birthday, my grandmother gave me a transistor radio. And mm-hmm. that really opened the world to me simply because at six years old, uh, the only radio that I'd ever been exposed to was what mom and dad played on the kitchen counter and what was played in the car. And they had their one mom and dad radio station. But then when I had my own radio, I was able to tune into not only radio stations from Winnipeg, which uh, of which there were a lot, but also at night you would get something called ionospheric skip when the atmosphere mm. thickens up, especially in the wintertime. And that turns the atmosphere into this giant mirror for AM radio signals. So I'd be listening to Minneapolis and Denver and Chicago and Louisville and Cincinnati cool. and Cleveland and all these other places. And I thought, wow, this is really kind of cool. Yeah. I, the world is much bigger than I thought it was. Mm-hmm. And I would kind of like to be part of this entertainment and information and music that's coming from space, as mm-hmm. far as I was concerned. Yeah. So that, w- that was the beginning of it. And then uh, I started, you know, buying records be- of things that I heard on the radio. And then one day we went to visit my uncle, who was um, – servicing jukeboxes as a side hustle and it was a a sunday and i guess he had just done his rounds taking out the old records and putting the new records in and there was this box of old records that he was going to throw up because they're all you know mostly worn out or they were not hit records and he asked me if i wanted them and i i took them and and that sort of became you know the larger basis of my um music collection and i think Mm -hmm. i was in grade eight when that happened although i was into music before then but i think the 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 first important series of records uh, as part of my collection started coming into into my possession in 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 about grade eight. Right, right. And what did you picture your career being as a kid? And was it anything close to what you're doing right now? Not even close. What I thought was I was going to be this news person, this anchor, reporter, foreign correspondent, a journalist, that kind mm-hmm. of thing, because. The idea of a, being a dope smoking radio DJ just somehow, I didn't think mom and dad would like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what I thought I was going to do. And uh, over the course of uh, time, I took a bunch of what I thought were appropriate courses in university, you know, science, political history, uh, p- political science, history, uh, French, sociology, that kind of thing, uh, which I thought would prepare me for becoming a journalist. Mm-hmm. And when were you introduced to radio broadcasting? Well, it started with that radio, but then I became really kind of obsessed with it. And there were a number of times where we would be driving through the city and a radio would be doing a sales remote, which means you're doing a remote broadcast from a furniture store or whatever. And and if we Hmm. were anywhere near where that broadcast was happening, I would, you know, demand that dad drive us there so I could see it happen. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there were a couple of other times where I demanded that dad take me to uh, some radio stations for some tours. And we would just show up unannounced and ask for a tour and, and we would get one. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, my God, and again, I'm seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old at that time. Yeah. You sounded like a bold kid. Uh, I, I don't know if I was bold. I was just curious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, when did you, fe- when do you feel like your career in radio and like music journalism begin and what did it look like at the beginning? Uh, well, radio began for an actual audience in university. I got mm-hmm. a one hour radio show on the closed circuit campus station. We broadcast to one hallway and one cafeteria <laughs> and my shift was eight thirty to nine thirty on Friday mornings. You can just mm-hmm. imagine how many people were at school at that point. Oh yeah. But that got me into a studio and, and learning how to use a few things. Uh, shortly thereafter, I heard that where there was a radio station opening up in the town next door to me and that the guy who was going to open the station came in to buy milk every Friday afternoon at the grocery store where I was working. So I would make sure that at 5.15, I was always filling the dairy case so I could talk to him when he bought his two liters of milk. Mm -hmm. Uh, I learned his name. I learned what he was doing. And I basically hassled him until uh, he said, okay, we're having a staff meeting. I want you to come. (laughs) So that was my first uh, professional radio thing. I was actually paid like, I think $6 an hour. And uh, it was a terrible radio station. It was literally in the middle of the wheat of a wheat field, 5,000 watts. Uh, and it was a beautiful music station, which means it was an elevator music station. <laughs> so for every two instrumentals we played, we could play one vocal. Mm-hmm. That's And it was really sleepy. It was really sleepy. It was just, oh, God. But it was my first opportunity to, to play records for an audience, to do the news, to do sports, to do weather, do all those things that a radio person has a chance to do. And that's what I did through university. And when I finally mm-hmm. graduated, I got a full-time job at a 1,000-watt radio station in northwestern Ontario, where I was told that the news guy was going to quit. But until he quits, what I want you to do, says the general manager, is just do the DJ thing, you know, all the regular stuff that a radio announcer would do. Okay, fine. That's fine. Hmm. So that was through the summer of 1983. I I did that for for six weeks. And just before Labor Day, the guy quits. So Hmm. I'm told that uh, Tuesday after Labor Day, you are going to be the newsroom. Fantastic. So I show up and I immediately hated it. There was nothing I enjoyed about it. And I went through a bit of an existential crisis thinking, geez, in my whole life, this is what I wanted to do. And it's not working out. I mean, where do I go from here? Mm-hmm. Uh, it just so happens that I got a phone call from a, another radio station, an F, a, a, a unusually hip radio station in Brandon, Manitoba, that was looking for somebody. I had applied to them earlier, but I did not get the job. But they needed somebody right away. And uh, would I be interested Absolutely. So, mm-hmm. uh, in fact, I, I gave three days notice and I uh, left the town so fast that my landlord sent the sheriff after me for non-payment of rent. <laughs> that's wow. that's a true story. So I went there for nine months playing, you know, FM radio station, rock radio station, playing records on the radio, talking about music and, and, and artists. And uh, I found out that that's what I really like to do. And that's what I've been doing yeah. ever since. Amazing. And how did you begin building your brand? 
Well, you know, every media person is a brand of some sort. Mm -hmm. It's only been fashionable in the last 10 years to really refer to yourself as a brand. But what what you want to be able to do is um, create a character that people engage with, that people like, that people um, feel the need to listen to. So I, you know, that's, that's what I've been doing from the very beginning. The, the music geek thing really began in 1993 when I was assigned this radio program, the ongoing history of new music by some new management at our radio station. And I didn't want to do it, but they said, well, if you don't do it, we'll find somebody else. And uh, here's your severance package. So the reason they gave it to me was because I had a history degree and they thought I could write. So they insisted that I do it, um, and that's the way it's been ever since. That was 954 <laughs> episodes ago. Mm-hmm. And how did you feel as though the radio industry treated you at the beginning? Was it difficult to cut your teeth in that business? Um, yeah, but it's like anything. You know, mm-hmm. radio is, is not such so much a nine-to-five job as it is a lifestyle because mm-hmm. you don't know when you're going to be working. Uh, it could, you, you know, it could be working overnights, you could be working afternoons, you could be working mornings, could be working weekends. It's, and you're always trying to keep in touch with what's happening with the world, specifically your community. So every day you're observing and taking notes of, you know, what is it that I can talk about and how can I talk about these things that would resonate with the audience? So it's, it's more or less a lifestyle than it is a job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. And when exactly uh, was the ongoing history of new music born and that, where did the original idea come from? Well, that's for management. Uh, that was, it, it started in 1993. What had happened is the station had gone through a series of uh, ownership changes and uh, with each ownership change came new management. And this new management thought that they were going to flip the radio station to country from its alternative music format. And mm-hmm. the station was kind of tired at that time. It had a lot of baggage and needed a lot of cleaning out. But they looked around, did some research, and realized that there were all these bands uh, and all these artists that were getting kind of hot with Generation X at the time. You know, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. So they thought that, okay, well, we're going to stick with this format. We're going to do it a little bit different. We're going to streamline things. And uh, we're also going to create this program that will put a lot of this music into context so that any new listeners that come to the radio station will have an idea of what we're talking about. And that's when they looked around, found me assigned me this show, which I did not want, <laughs> and uh, gave it the stupid title. And that was it. First, uh, I think it was January 29th, 1993 was the first show. Wow. And here we are. And here we are so many mm-hmm. years later. I'd yeah. never thought, never in a billion years thought I'd still be doing this <laughs> uh, this many years later. Yeah. And how long did it take for you to gain a noticeable following? Uh, that's a good question. The problem with radio is that you really don't know who's listening until the ratings come out. You're Mm -hmm. sitting in a room by yourself with a metal thing hanging in front of your face and you're talking to yourself, carrying on this one-way conversation, kind of like the crazy guy walking up and down the street. Yeah. Uh, so you, radio people tend to be a little squirrely after a while because (laughs) you're putting so much of your soul, so much of your emotion into this job and you have no idea if it's having any effect until the ratings come out. If they go up, well, that's great. You've been validated. If they go down, it's like, why don't they like me? And what did I do wrong? Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, 
it's it's something that you that you have to deal with and then there's so many other skills you have to deal with a lot of people think that oh i just i'm a good talker or i have a good voice i can be on the radio well no i mean you need a certain uh character certain disposition to be able to do it properly it's mm-hmm. it's like saying uh, you know go play, go play basketball in the nba well you know i'm 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 5 foot 10 well that's not going to work so <laughs> um it, it, and and the idea of, of starting out in a big city is, is a bad one because you want to start in a smaller town where you have an opportunity to try all kinds of different things like I did. I mean, I tried mm-hmm. being you know, a guy on the radio playing records. I tried being, uh, I tried writing commercials. I did, uh, I tried producing commercials. I was in the newsroom and all these things help you gain the skills that you need going forward. And the higher you, um, you rise, uh, the more specialized your skills could become. So I could have become a, a, a you know a, a dedicated news person. I could have become a dedicated uh, production producer. I could have mm-hmm. become you know a copywriter. Any of those things. But I gravitated to being the guy on the radio playing records. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally. And what was one of the first milestones that you hit that made you think you'd made it? Hmm. Um. I think the first time I stepped out in front of a crowd and I announced my name from a stage probably introducing a band and there was a reaction from the audience that'll do it that oh really you um you know who i am (laughs) and you're you're applauding me yeah that's interesting okay Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you've interviewed quite a lot of famous musicians um do you have an interesting story to tell well there's there's a bunch i i've oh god i've lost count of how many people that i've interviewed um the really, I got two big gaps in my resume. One is the Rolling Stones. I've never talked to anybody from that band. And I've never talked to anybody from Pink Floyd. And I feel mm-hmm. shame about it. And I haven't talked to Elton mm-hmm. John, which, you know, those three things really kind of bother me. And they're getting up there. And, uh, you know, anyway. Um, but I, uh, there was a, an interview with David Bowie I did. And this was 1990 when he was doing his Tin Machine thing. And mm-hmm. I was absolutely freaked out. But I did get 30 minutes face-to-face with David Bowie. And wow. he made me feel the, the amount of charisma the guy had, the the amount of attention he gave me. He looked me in the eye, made me feel like I was the only person in the world that mattered. And wow. I have no no idea what he said because I was just so freaked out. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of this 30 minutes, he signed my CD and he left. And I looked down and I realized that I had forgotten to unpause my cassette player. <laughs> Shit. Mm-hmm. So, uh, several years later, I get to meet him again. And I uh, said, David, can I talk to you? Uh, here's what happened. And he uh, looks at me and he puts his hand on my shoulder and he looks me in the eye and he says, well, that was stupid of you, wasn't it? <laughs> and he turned on his heel and walked away with a smile. <laughs> you know, so that's, it was, it was traumatic at the time, but it certainly oh. makes for a good story now. Oh, yeah. Once in a lifetime opportunity. And honestly, I mean, you know, you still got a great story out of it. So you gained something. And um, you've been involved with uh, the Canadian music industry since the 80s. Um, Besides like the internet, which is obviously one of the biggest changes, what do you feel is the other most impactful changes that you've witnessed? Well, a couple of things. The technology that we use today, we Mm -hmm. used to be very much into vinyl. Uh, mm-hmm. We just come back a little bit, but we still don't use it all that much. Um, we went from vinyl to CDs. We went from tape, magnetic tape, to digital production. That was a big change because 
with tape, it was just so fiddly and time consuming. But with digital production, it's really, really quick. I, I, I can't, unless you worked with tape, you don't know how big of a leap it was to go mm-hmm. to digital. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know, we were playing CDs for a while, then everything became hard drive based. And, uh, in the old days, what we used to do is have to, every, every segue between songs was, was a mix. You, you, you were, you were a DJ in the, every sense in the word in that you, um, you, you mixed from one record to the next. Uh, you played each commercial individually. So every 30 seconds, you had some kind of deadline that you had to do. So that was a big deal. Uh, the other thing was that radio in the old days used to be one of three or four things that you would turn to for your entertainment. You had television, maybe you had, you know, between three and 50 channels. You could go to a movie, you could read a book. You could go to a record store or you could listen to the radio. Now you have nearly unlimited entertainment options, which means that radio share of the entertainment pie has, has shrunk. Mm-hmm. Um, now radio is still very popular, powerful and um, profitable, but it doesn't have the widespread as much of as much of a widespread influence as it, as it used to. Uh, I remember when radio was the thing in, in, in town and everybody listened to a radio and everybody had their favorite radio station and everybody had their favorite DJ. Um, that's still the case, but it's, it's just not as, as pervasive as it once was. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got, uh, with, with, with streaming, with smartphones, with, um, video games, with, you know, uh, Netflix, and there's just so many other things that somebody can do other than listen to the radio. However, radio continues to be this thing, especially in the car, because it's one of the few things that you can do in the car while you're driving. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to take a step back, because I actually missed a question here, but just to throw it back a little bit, um, most music nerds and, like, radio lovers that I know are familiar with you and your work. Do you feel, have you ever felt famous I felt uncomfortable with people recognizing me. <laughs> uh, and that I listen, uh, some people get into this line of work because they want to be famous. Mm-hmm. I got into this line of work because I liked radio. It was never about being famous. I just wanted to press these buttons and play these records. That was my thing. Mm-hmm. And if something, you know, I'm, I'm a hardcore introvert, believe it or not. I, I don't like, you know, I'm, I'm not good in crowds. I'm not good with small talk. Mm-hmm. Um, performing, uh, in, in front of people or with people you know, requires an awful lot of energy, like psychic energy for me. Um, but, uh, there have been moments where, where people have told me that, uh, I've been important or I've said something to them that, you know, was, was significant. So I realize that there is a responsibility that goes along with what I do. Mm. And, uh, it's also very important to remain humble because things could change in a heartbeat. Yeah. So I've always lived by the, the rule, you know, don't be a dick. Just, <laughs> just, you know, and if somebody wants to talk to you, talk to them. That's, that's a big deal for them. They don't want you life size. They, they want to tell whether I believe it or not, whether I think I'm worth it or not, they, they do. So you have to respond to what, what people expect of you. Mm-hmm. And, and that's only, that's only right. Yeah. Words to live by. I mean, don't be a dick. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, I know the technical birth of the internet was in 83, but obviously it wasn't widely used and is unrecognizable compared to what it is today. So what good do you think the invention and involvement of the internet has done for the music industry? Uh, you know, that's, that's a glass half empty, half full mm-hmm. situation. Mm-hmm. You know, before 2000, uh, everything was based on selling pieces of plastic to the public and, Money flowed like water throughout the music industry. I'll give you an example. REM released an album in 1997, and their label held a listening party, an international listening party, where all you did was listen to this new record. And they decided that they were going to fly in people from all over the world to Rio de Janeiro just to listen to a CD. Mm-hmm. You can imagine that? Mm-hmm. That's how much money was flowing. But after file sharing came along in uh, the early 2000s, the money dried up Mm -hmm. because people weren't buying CDs at the same rate that they used to. So the music industry went through about a dozen years of adjustment, trying to figure out how are we going to move from this 100-year-old paradigm of selling pieces of plastic to the public into the digital world. And it was very painful, very, very painful. Uh, A lot of people lost their jobs. Um, Advertising for records dried up. Mm -hmm. Uh, Give me another example. The reason we don't see so many music magazines anymore is because a lot of their revenue was based on advertising the sale of new records, of albums, of artists. And nobody's buying albums anymore, so it doesn't pay. Uh, everything's all about streaming these days. Mm-hmm. Now, streaming is really cool because it gives everybody the access to about 95 million songs. Yeah. Compare that to about 100,000 albums that you would get in even the biggest record store. So that's cool. Uh, on the downside of that, it's all unfiltered. And there's a lot of crap out there. About 20% of all those songs on Spotify, for example, so 95 million, 20%, so almost 20 million songs, have never been played once. Mm-hmm. There's, there's too much music out there and nobody, nobody can possibly keep up with it. And back in the day when you had these gatekeepers, record stores, radio stations, video channels, and of course, record labels, they filtered out a lot of that stuff and they only put out what they thought was going to sell right. commercially or had some sort of artistic merit mm-hmm. usually. And uh, that meant that there were far fewer um, artists, record songs in the marketplace. And they were all on physical products. So you had to really source something out. You couldn't just, you know, pick up a device and get any song you want within 1.5 seconds. It just didn't happen. So um, there was an artificial scarcity of music created by these gatekeepers. And the other thing, because there was only so much music you'd listen to, you would have uh, a lot of consensus. So here's an example. In grade 10, In my class, there were 30 people. Of those 30 people, let's say two of them were country music fans, five of them were uh, pop music fans, and the rest of the class, the remaining 24 or 23, were KISS fans. And the reason they were KISS fans is because the guy on the radio told you that KISS was the biggest band in the world. Mm. Uh, The music magazines told you that they were the biggest band in the world. When you went to a record store, what records were stacked up front? Kiss records. So they had to be the biggest band in the world. And that sort of exposure created this consensus that, yeah, right, Kiss is the biggest band in the world. And we went out and bought all these records. That all came tumbling down after Napster in 1999 because everybody was their own music director. Everybody could choose exactly what music they wanted. And um, 
nobody could 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 tell them what to like and what not to like it was it was all based on the individual mm-hmm. and when you do that you know how do you have widespread consensus i mean even the biggest stars today the weekends the drakes the beavers of the world they're nowhere near as big as stars as they used to be back in the day mm. nowhere near i mean when you'd have a you know red hot chili pepper selling 15 million copies of an album or michael jackson selling you know 60 million copies or whatever it is of of thriller or you know, Metallica selling 30 million copies of the Black Album or ACDC selling 45 million copies of Back in Black. I mean, we don't have that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And what was writing about music like pre-internet days? Do you feel as though the internet has overall helped or harmed Canadian music journalism? Well, it's helped journalism overall mm-hmm. um, on, on one sense because, uh, you know, finding information about an artist or a record is, is is not easy or was not easy in the uh, pre-internet days. You had to either do the interviews yourself one-on-one and it had to be either over the phone or in person. There was no Zoom or Skype or anything like that. Uh, you would look at um, press releases issued by record labels, but I mean, they'd be biased. Um, and there were precious few books written on the subjects. So it was really, really time consuming, really hard and, um, very specialized. And the best people got decent paying jobs and were able to make a living doing it. Today, uh, information is everywhere. Uh, the music magazines have all but folded. Uh, the ones that have survived are online and it's relatively easy to do an interview with, uh, any number of, of, um, with any number of things. Plus you have connections through social media that, that can help you. So everybody, anybody can be a music journalist. And the problem is that there's no place to put all this journalism except on Instagram or private blogs or newsletters. Um, and, and as a result of so many people wanting to be journalists, there's not a lot of money to be made in it. Even the old school guys and women aren't making the kind of coin that they used to. It's just changed everything because Information about music wants to be free, and people don't want to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there was a, there was a time when I would spend uh, between four and five thousand dollars a year on music magazines. Most yeah. of them were the expensive ones out of the UK. You know, they cost twelve dollars an issue or fifteen dollars an issue because they right. were really good, really important. But all those music magazines are gone. I mean, there's no more Q magazine. Mm-hmm. There's there's, there's no more uh, Melody Maker. Mm-hmm. NME is a shadow of its former self. There's uh, there's still Record Collector. And there's still Classic Rock and a few others. But, uh, you know, The Face and Vox and Select, they're all gone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you have any nostalgia for that pre-internet time? I, I do because uh, when you discovered something, it was your secret for a while. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you could you kind of keep it to yourself for a bit, or you could use it as, "Hey, look what I found." Now it's like, uh, it's it's not the same. It, it was, I mean, this the music discovery still happens, but that shot of adrenaline that you get when you find something truly amazing uh, isn't as great, simply because not only did you find it, but a million other people found it at exactly the same time. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is, oh, I found this. Okay, done. What's next? Mm-hmm. There's no savoring of, of music as much as there used to be anymore. And that's because you don't have 
a financial interest in it. Mm -hmm. You know, if you bought a $25 CD, damn it, you were going to listen to that CD to make sure that you got as much money as much value out of it as you possibly could for your $25. But if you have the free tier on, on, on Spotify, music costs you nothing. You have no financial commitment to the artist. You have no financial interest in their career. And everything that you do is completely risk free. So you tend not to value the music as much as as we did back in the day. That's not to say that you don't love music. You probably do. But I tell you, if you're not paying for it, you just don't have the same sort of connection simply because you made that financial stake in the tr- in the choice that you made of what you bought. Mm-hmm. 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 It's, it's a completely different culture. It is a completely different culture. And mm-hmm. if you can get... You know, any of, any of 95 million songs on your phone in 1.5 seconds and still have, instead of, uh, you know, having to get on the bus and go down to the record store and look at the racks and hopefully the record that you wanted was there and, hard, you know, hand over your hard-earned money after agonizing whether or not you should buy the record and coming home and then opening up and putting it on the turntable or in the CD player and then hoping that you liked what you heard because you didn't have an idea. All you, all you knew was that, hey, my, my this artist has a new album. What does it sound like? I don't know. Got to buy it and take it home and listen to it. Yeah. Yeah, there was there was very little in the way of of, of being able to preview uh, an entire album. I mean, some places like HMV used to have these listing stations, but they only had certain records hmm. available on the listing stations. Mm-hmm. It, it was uh, it was a different time. Yeah. Okay. What do you suspect the Canadian music journalism industry will look like in the next few years? Where do you think we're headed? I have no idea. <laughs> I, I just know that there are so many people that want to do it. Yeah. But there are limited opportunities that pay. Mm-hmm. That's that's the problem. Uh, I mean, newspapers, for example, used to have a whole entertainment department. All these different people that would go out and review shows and review records and all that. They're gone. They're not there. So it's it's really, really tough to say where journalism is going to go in the future, mm-hmm. uh, simply because it's so expensive to generate and nobody wants to pay for it. Right. Mm-hmm. So the problem is that we're, you know, it's like with, that you call this a news desert. It, it's especially bad in um, small towns that used to have a newspaper. That would cover, you know, what was happening, or not even small towns, but small cities, uh, that would have, that would have uh, a staff that would cover everything that's happening in, in the region. Mm-hmm. Now you have these newspapers that get nothing but wire stories and pick up stories from the New York Times or, uh, the Wall Street Journal or from New York, um, uh, the Associated Press or Canadian Press or whatever. And there's, there, there's nothing that covers local stuff. So it's, it's really quite, an interesting time for the news industry, for journalism as a whole. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what do you feel as though Canadian radio was like when you first started compared to now? Well, it's it's still, like I said, profitable, powerful, and popular, but mm-hmm. the issue is one of um, market share mm-hmm. and mind share. It's, it's not what it used to be, and if we deny that while well, we're fooling ourselves, uh, it has to change. I mean, this is a technology that's been around for about 100 years. It is uh, going to have to evolve into something that is more compatible with the with the digital age. But what form it'll take is still to be determined. Um, 
and the problem is that the you know it's still working as it is so you're going to have to keep doing what you're doing while innovating at the same time and that's going to be difficult mm-hmm. or it has proven to be difficult and this is something we've been struggling with for about 20 years now but we'll figure it out because radio is very good at creating great audio entertainment and information we'll just find a new way of delivering it uh, that is not necessarily AM or FM. Totally, yeah. And um, how do you feel as though the internet has impacted radio as a medium? Well, first, we have pictures and video, which mm-hmm. is something we never used to have. We I do. remember when we realized that we could do that with our our websites. I mean, in the late 90s, when we were starting to really get into it, uh, management didn't understand why we needed a website. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And eventually we convinced them that, you know what, this is the thing. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that you can't have a radio station unless you are you have a robust online presence. It just doesn't work. Yeah. Um, podcasting was another thing that radio was slow to get into because, well, this is just going to cannibalize our on-air listening. Mm-hmm. Well, no, it has become essential um, on-demand listening for people who can't, who may miss something that, see, that happens with radio. See, it, it, radio is almost always live. And, you know, once you broadcast something, it goes out into space and you never hear from it again. So if you miss the morning show or if you miss this program or if you missed something, there's no way to go back and get it. Or there was no way to go back and get it. Now there is. Either it could be streaming, it could be on demand, it could be, you know, a variety of things. So that's that's really important. Mm-hmm. And um, we can do things beyond just audio. Uh, like I said, there's pictures, there's video, we can have interviews, we can have, you know, goofy films. We can do all kinds of things that we never were able to do before. Uh, and we can reach people in ways that we never otherwise could. So, for example, uh, if you're in Vancouver and you want to listen to something in Toronto, you can mm-hmm. because everybody streams online. And if you want to really listen to something, I mean, I listen to the BBC all the time. That was something I could never do yeah. back, in, back in the day, but now I can. Absolutely. And what do you think the future of radio is? We'll survive. We're going to be in a much <laughs> different uh, environment, especially when things like 5G and 6G come along. Yeah. will allow for much more, uh, much quicker um, interactivity and a lot more personalization. Right. What? But we're still trying to figure out what the vision is for, for that. For sure. For sure. And what are the major ways that you've had to adapt as the industry changes around you? Well, you have to keep abreast of everything that's happening. One of the problems that a lot of radio people have had over the last, well, it's always been a case. They think that they're bigger than the radio station. Hmm. They think that their audience will demand uh, that they stay forever, that they're indispensable. Uh, not the case. Hmm. It's, it's, it, the trick is to how can you progress through a career in this business while maintaining relevancy? Mm-hmm. that's and that's different for everybody there is no magic bullet for that you have to figure out how you can uh, grow with your audience while simultaneously uh, welcoming in a new audience that may be younger and may have different interests than the older audience right so you have to be able to bridge this gap while remaining relevant to everybody mm-hmm. and how do you feel you did as that well i'm still here after 41 years so i'm doing something right i'm not sure what Right. But I, 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 it's, 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 it's still, it's still going. So, <laughs> um, and I try not to think about it too much. And you can never coast. I mean, that's the big thing. You can never coast. You always got to mm. be moving forward. And with me, 
uh, it's always been about technology. You know, how do you, you know, when social media came in, you have to figure out how to work that. You have to uh, post on, on it, the, it, it's so easy now, but back in the day, when it came to blogging, for example, I mean, there was all kinds of specialized software and you had to know how to code certain things. And, um, it was, it was a real nightmare, but that got you into the mindset of what it was like to actually be online and pre- present information, um, online. So that's, that's the thing. You know, how does your audience consume media? Okay. Then you got to be there. Hmm. That's basically it. Hmm. Good point. And what advice would you give to anyone emerging onto the Canadian radio scene? Uh, don't think that you can start in a big city. Uh, I wouldn't do it. I would go to all the, I would get my first job in a small town where I got a chance to learn everything mm-hmm. and to figure out if this is really what I want to do. Move away to a small place, consider it an adventure, learn about different people, different, you know, everything. Because where you grew up is not how it is all the way across the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, go and find something new. Expand your horizons. If you're not tied to someplace by relationships or real estate or anything like that, uh, go. Go try something different while you can. The other thing is, if you start in a small town, you'll get a salary. But every time you move up, your salary will increase. And by the time you get to a large market, you'll be making way more money than you would have had you started in that large market and been pigeonholed into a particular uh, into a particular role. Right. Right. Good point. Yeah. And what can we look forward to seeing from you? Uh, there are at least there are four, maybe five uh, visual media things that I'm working on, TV shows or movies. Cool. Uh, plus all the radio stuff. Plus there are two... Uh, sort of book projects in the back of my mind. Uh, there's lots of stuff. I'm always looking for things to do, uh, ways to keep relevant, ways to keep in front of people. Um, and this is, uh, it's, it's a never ending pro- process. I mean, and then something like COVID comes along and it's like, okay, right, yeah. how are you going to adapt, uh, adapt to that? Well, fortunately, I was in a position where I have my own studio and I have my own office at home. Mm-hmm. And to be very honest, I really didn't notice COVID all that much from a work point of view, hmm, simply because I'd, al- I'd already been completely self-contained, which was, was good. Yeah. Uh, but now that we're sort of emerging from this, you know, monkeypox notwithstanding, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I'm going to have to evolve again to, to back, t- you know, from, from two and a half comfortable years uh, as an introvert working in my basement in my home studio to going out into the wider world again. Yeah. Oh, God. That's terrifying. Well, it can be, mm-hmm. and everybody's lost all their social skills. Everybody's lost their ability to to um, do small talk. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's you know, and everybody has been comfortable going to work in their sweatpants. It's going to be another major shift for everybody in the workforce, uh, and it's just a, a matter of time for us to get used to how things have, and, and things are not going to be the same as they were before COVID because there's uh, there are new rules there are new behaviors there are new things that we have to learn how to deal with mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
everybody listening, if you enjoyed this episode, um, go check out Alan. You can find all things Alan at a journal of musical things.com on Instagram under Alan underscore cross X on Twitter under Alan cross on TikTok under Alan cross X and on Facebook under the ongoing history of new music with Alan cross. And I think I got everything. I think so. Um, <laughs> and also check out all of his, you know, uh, radio shows. Tune in and do it. Um, thank you so much for joining me tonight, Alan. Oh, you're welcome. Let me know when this is posted and I share it with everybody. Well, thank you so much. I will definitely do that. And you have a great night. Yeah.